Welcome to BrainStuff from How Stuff Works. Hey, BrainStuff, Lauren Vogelbaum here. It's 1889. Missouri newspaper editor Chris Rutt and his friend Charles Underwood have created the world's first pancake ready mix, but they need a scheme to sell it. Rutt has seen a minstrel show that featured the popular song Old Aunt Jemima. Inspired by the character, who was often portrayed by a white man in blackface and drag, he decides to name their new breakfast concoction Aunt Jemima and attach her stereotypical mammy image, a genial and submissive black woman who worked as a nanny or housekeeper for white families, to the product. But the two fail in marketing the business, and they sell the company to the R.T. Davis Milling Company in 1890. R.T. Davis Company not only fine-tunes the pancake recipe, but also the Aunt Jemima marketing ploy. The company decides to turn Aunt Jemima into a real black woman, and they put former slave Nancy Green on display at the 1893 World's Exposition in Chicago, where she sings songs, cooks pancakes, and tells euphemistic stories about the Old South. Fast forward more than 100 years to today. Many iterations of Aunt Jemima and tons of boxes of pancake mix have been sold, and vestiges of the company's racist roots remain. And so does blackface. As is evident from the news, blackface, the centuries-old practice of using makeup to transform into a caricature of a black person, usually with googly white eyes, ink-colored skin, and big red lips, is still alive and well. College students across the world wear costumes and blackface at Halloween parties. Performers appear on stage and television in blackface. Businesses and homes still proudly display the iconography and racist memorabilia without addressing their complicated history. Because that complicated history stretches so back into our cultural history, it's not a surprise that some people are still strolling into shindigs in blackface. But the reason that current instances of blackface blow up in the news and in social media conversation, like, for example, the old photo of rapper Drake in blackface that surfaced, is because the practice has long been deemed harmful to the popular perception of black people. Take abolitionist Frederick Douglass's comments on musical performers wearing blackface called minstrels. He wrote in the newspaper The North Star in 1848 that they're, quote, the filthy scum of white society who have stolen from us a complexion denied to them by nature, in which to make money and pander to the corrupt taste of their white fellow citizens. Black people have been paraded for the enjoyment of white people and imitated by white actors for centuries. In the book Black Like You, Blackface, Whiteface, Insult, and Imitation in American Popular Culture, journalist and cultural commentator John Strasbaugh argues that the seeds of blackface were planted, quote, with the first organized contacts between Europeans and Africans. But blackface as we know it today, a cultural practice meant to mock, exoticize, disparage, pity, and generalize African-American people and culture, can be traced back to 19th century theater. Let's talk about minstrel shows. These shows started out as performances by white male minstrels, traveling musicians, who wore blackface and caricatured slaves. The shows were basically an absurd blend of stereotyping, racism, and capitalism at its finest. Minstrels parodied black song and dance, burned cork to blacken their faces, and acted like fools on stage, touring the United States and sometimes Britain to amuse white audiences. Most blackface minstrelsy was performed by non-blacks, but black people did perform in these shows too. Billy Kersans, the composer of the song Old Aunt Jemima, was a black comedian known for his blackface minstrelsy. At first, minstrels performed solo, perpetuating stereotypical narratives like that of the mammy, the uneducated rural slave, and the clumsily sophisticated black man. By the mid-1800s, the prevalence of minstrel shows had grown so tremendously that minstrel ensembles were popping up everywhere, and a show formula had developed. There were jokes, ballads, one-act plays, dancing, burlesque, and a bunch of other acts that generally make a show entertaining. 
minstrel shows were a hit for years to come. They even gained traction in the last decades of the 19th century after emancipation and in cities where white people didn't interact much with black people. Famous performers like Al Jolson, Shirley Temple, Ronald Reagan, and Judy Garland contributed to the popularity of blackface in the early 1900s, and amateur minstrel shows persisted in small local venues until the mid-1900s. But by the late 1800s, minstrel shows were dwindling. Vaudeville performances and movies were on the rise, and eventually the civil rights era rendered blackface minstrelsy unacceptable. But the disparaging portrayals, belittling stereotypes, and prejudices toward black people that the shows imparted were already deeply entrenched in the American cultural consciousness. Blackface minstrelsy perpetuated messages that black people are buffoonish, dim-witted, exotic, and enigmatic, among other negative characterizations. Studies show that media portrayals can affect the way people perceive blacks in real life, and that stereotypes can affect the way people interact with others. And there's strong evidence that implicit bias, the tendency for people to attribute certain characteristics to different demographics based on stereotypes, can affect how people treat blacks. For instance, metro areas with greater average implicit bias have more racial disparities in police shootings. To this day, the perception of black males as aggressive and criminal remains and is used to justify the use of violence against them. As research and time have shown, there are long-lasting implications of assigning negative stereotypes to black people. So, when the internet erupts in an uproar against a person wearing blackface, the problem is not political correctness, and it's not generational sensitivity. Blackface's legacy is one of white supremacy and exploitation of black identity, and the weight and consequences of that history cannot be divorced from it, no matter how great someone might think their costume is. As Strasbaugh put it, the problem, of course, is that so few of us know our history. Today's episode was written by Eves Jeffcoat and produced by Tyler Klang. For more on this and lots of other historical topics, visit our home planet, howstuffworks.com. Howstuffworks.com.